technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... What's the future of shopping? I think it will end up being actually uh, more varied than we think. One of the mistakes that's been made in the internet age is people, particularly people who study economics very well, have failed to understand the value of intermediaries. And I think there is a value in curation. I think there's a value that retailers provide in choice limitation. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Sutherland is a real-life advertising industry madman. The vice chairman of Ogilvy UK isn't convinced artificial intelligence will do all of our shopping for us, as Amazon predicts. The world's biggest online retailer has told me it sees a day when your doorbell will ring and it will be a delivery containing exactly the thing you didn't know you wanted. Sutherland insists purchases are made with emotion, not machine learning. And before Futurhythmic flew across the pond to talk to the brains behind some of the world's most successful marketing campaigns, I had a chance to talk to Rory Sutherland about Amazon's next big thing. So you won't even want to, you won't even need to ask what you want. That's right. It'll, the doorbell will ring and it will know that Rory is a fan of gray pullovers and he likes a gray pullover every March. And so maybe we should send him a couple of gray pullovers. And if he likes them, he can keep them. If he doesn't, he just hits a button and it all goes away. Yeah, I, I have heard vaguely that Amazon actually place orders for you before you've placed them on the assumption that they might as well start. They, once the probability that you order something becomes sufficiently high, they start making the moves as though you're going to buy it, knowing they can cancel it if you then fail to live up to your prediction. So there is a certain amount of preemptive AI, I think, used by Amazon already. Where I find that a bit dubious is that it doesn't understand the human urge to have some degree of control and autonomy, which we actually value for our own sake. One of the reasons we probably enjoy shopping is that it gives us the opportunity to make relatively trivial decisions. And therefore, actually, if you take away those decisions from us, then you aren't necessarily improving the quality of human life. In the same way that the driverless car, don't forget, I wouldn't like to estimate what part it is, but a significant amount of the time people spend driving, they actually enjoy. It's very easy to think of yourself being stuck in traffic or to think of a five-hour interstate journey and to go, oh, I can't wait until a computer replaces that. But quite a lot of our driving, we fundamentally seem to enjoy. So you disagree with the premise that there will come a time in our lives where we don't have to think about the groceries, we don't have to think about clothes shopping, we don't have to think? Um, I think it's very dangerous because the, uh, the question that isn't understood is the degree of information asymmetry, which is there are certain things that only I will know that are specific to the individual context of a decision. And so, funnily enough, we're having this discussion this morning about parcel delivery, which is something, obviously, a subject highly relevant to Amazon. And one of my complaints about Amazon is that they are undoubtedly 
you know, some of the greatest logistics brains in the universe are here looking at how you can deliver my goods more efficiently. And probably in terms of efficiency, they define a mixture of time, things going missing, and very largely cost. But as far as my experience goes, there are about 10 factors that I know about that they don't know about. So for example, if you ask me, how would you like something delivered? Um, one factor might be I'm working from home tomorrow, so actually it's very important it arrives the next day. Or it's actually only a USB stick, so I'd prefer you sent it by Royal Mail so the postman can just sling it through the letterbox without requiring an extra van to drive up my drive. Um, it might include a whole, I mean, a whole host of factors there in terms of your preference. Um, in terms of what I feel emotionally good about, it isn't easy um, to correlate what you might call the objective reality with the human perception. So what's an objectively good delivery in the mind of a logistics expert may differ very significantly from what's good in the mind of a recipient. And there'll be a whole variety of things. Let's say I'm ordering five different things, okay? I'd actually prefer them to be sent probably to a pickup point because knowing Amazon, uh, even if those things arrive on the same day, they might arrive in three separate deliveries, which is starting to be a pain in the ass for me and my neighbours. For instance, uh, the size of the item, what I plan to be doing tomorrow, what time of day I expect it to arrive, all those things are relevant. Uh, there's a further point which Amazon seems to have missed, which is if they let me choose who delivered my parcel, if something went wrong, I'd blame them and myself, not Amazon. Because Amazon dictates to me who will deliver every package I order, when anything goes wrong, I blame them. So, you know, funnily enough, you know, uh, for you, it's probably the opposite. You may find, uh, for example, Amazon delivery is fantastic and DPD and Hermes disappointing. I find DPD and Hermes pretty good. I find Amazon a bit of a pain in the ass. Okay. Now, there are a whole load of, of entirely... Uh, individualized considerations in deciding how you deliver something for which most of the information I think uh, only rests in the very specific knowledge of the recipient and I think second-guessing people uh, the other point is um, I'll give you another example of context okay let's say you ask a very simple question uh, how should I get to Gatwick Airport now we already have a kind of AI which is a sat-nav okay now, the sat-nav isn't totally monolithic in its thinking. It considers, um, you know, how, what the traffic is likely to be like, although how reliably it predicts is, you know, dubious. It considers likely traffic and real-time traffic. It considers um, minimising the expected journey time, OK? And I think it also has a component which does consider distance. And the reason I assume that is that a lot of, a lot of drivers will get very pissed off if a sat-nav sent them five miles in the wrong direction to save two minutes on a journey. So it can't only look at time, it has to look at distance. But again, the trade-off between distance and time in itself is a matter of individual preference and may decide entirely on what mood you're in. But then it goes a bit further, okay? I've, I noticed that I ignored my sat-nav whenever I drove to Gatwick Airport. So the sat-nav would tell me to go on the M25, large sort of interstate motorway, and I used to take the back road instead. 
And I asked myself, why, why are you doing this? Why are you ignoring the sat-nav, given its spectacular uh, calculating abilities? And I realised, of course, that when you're catching a plane, you don't want the shortest journey on average, you want the journey with the lowest variance. And there's always a trade-off between optimization and variance reduction in a decision. And that trade-off, of course, depends on context. So my argument is, look, um, no journey on the A25 will ever be as fast as the fastest 90% of journeys on the M25. In fact, it won't be as fast as the fastest 95% of journeys on the M25. But if something goes wrong on the A25, it delays me by 15 minutes. I can then turn off into a side road. I don't miss my plane. If something goes wrong on the A25, a truck jackknifes, for example, I'm delayed by an hour and a half while forensics clear up the mess, and I actually miss my flight. So what I was looking for instinctively, what my amygdala was doing there, was going, actually ignore this sat-nav, it's, it's a maximizer, it's treating this as an optimization problem, whereas what you want is downside risk minimization. Now, on the way home from the airport, I'd obey the sat-nav, because right. variance isn't that important when I'm getting home. But you know, no sat-nav understands whether you're going to visit your mother-in-law or whether you're going to a meeting in Frankfurt, and actually the route you'd take would be different in each case. And then furthermore, if you take a more difficult decision, okay, let's take the decision of how do I get to Gatwick at all? Should I be driving at all? Well, Google, I mean, Google navigation is extraordinary because it, it carries all the prejudices of a Californian. It assumes you're either going by car or you're going by public transport. Right. But there's a, you know, there's a bit of that. Geez, if you can't, have, you know, the only reason you're possibly taking a bus is because you haven't got a car. And, of course, if you're a Brit, um, you notice that the algorithm contains the prejudices of its own designer. Right. If you're a Brit, the most sensible way to get into London from, well, Shear, for that matter, is drive to a station, take a train. And that's both the fastest journey and the lowest variance journey. Let's come back, though, to a point that you made about um, a lot of these algorithms are incapable of taking variance into consideration. Mm -hmm. There would be an argument that would say that is correct today. Um, and when we analyze any given technology, one of the failings that we have is we often analyze that technology in isolation, in a vacuum, uh, unaware that there are a variety of additional technologies that are all going to be coming together at about the same time. Yeah, uh, that's fair. That, and, and with that in I, mind, I, I very much agree with taking a kind of evolutionary standpoint on technology. An awful lot of things depend on the invention of something else. Right. So, for example, your route preference when getting from point A to point B may depend on the mood you're in, but there will be additional technologies that will be connected to the decision that gets made on your behalf that have, have noticed, wait a minute, he's, he's, got, he's got a smile, he's in a good mood today, I can tell, I read his emails, I saw all his text messages, I saw his face on the camera uh, in the security lobby on the way in, I can tell Rory's in a good mood today, he's more interested in a lately traveled scenic route therefore that's what we're going to take him on uh, but um, uh, my view would be and this is quite an extreme one even if it had the facility to make perfect recommendations under those conditions let's imagine for a second its understanding of my mood my need state etc was so fantastic that it could do that 
I would still propose as a choice architect that it should include a degree of placebo choice. Now, it might only allow me to choose between the best option and things which were 1% worse, okay, or worse right. by its own measure. I would still do that just for the, the additional pleasure that's afforded when you give someone a choice. And incidentally, the minimization of blame. Uh, you know, occasionally this thing's going to make a perfect recommendation and my journey's going to be terrible. And my net human reaction will be, I'll be angry with it. Now, if it had given me a choice, even if the choice had been actually immaterial in terms of the difference in the outcomes, I'd be slightly angry with myself or blame fate rather than blaming the computer, as it were. So it's one of those questions like, do driverless cars need to get a bit angry? Because if they don't, people will dick them around. <laughs> Every once in a while, a self-driving car needs to cut another car off just no, so no, no. Oh, well, I mean, literally, because otherwise pedestrians won't need pedestrian crossings. They'll just go... Now, I'll, I'll give you a tip. Are you based, Are you in the UK or in the US? I, I'm in Canada. In Canada? Fantastic. Where in Canada? Toronto. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Just to give an example, in London, uh, if you ever want to cross a zebra crossing and um, you are slightly wary that uh, you might get hit or the car might not stop, Cross in front of a black cab. And the reason is that black cabs are preternaturally afraid of um, it, it losing their license. And if they have too many infractions for traffic incidents, like failing to stop at a zebra crossing, the consequences for them are much, much worse than they would be for an ordinary car. And so just as a pedestrian tip in London, you know, if, if it only takes you, you know, a minute to wait for a black cab to come along, cross that zebra crossing in front of the black cab. Now, if you extend that driverless cars, the problem is people won't even bother for a pedestrian, waiting for a pedestrian crossing. They'll just step out onto the road, watch the driverless car lurch painfully in one direction or another with the inhabitants being thrown around inside. And then the pedestrian can just give a cheery wave and walk on. So right. unless there's the tiny risk that it wangs you on the ankles, People will just abuse driverless cars. And that's not to mention cunning people in parts of the UK who are going to play practical jokes on them. Knowing that your time is limited here. And we've no, no, it's not, no, I've got quite a bit of time. Uh, don't we? Let's, well, let, let's move on to the, to the specific topic at hand as we talk about the future of persuasion. What's the future of shopping? Um, uh, it's interesting. Um, I think it will end up being actually uh, more varied than we think. I think that one of the mistakes that's been made in the internet age is people, particularly people who study economics very well, have failed to understand the value of intermediaries. And I think there is a value um, in curation. I think there's a value that retailers provide in choice limitation. One of the improvements I'd like to see is a slightly cleverer use of choice architecture in terms of the journey we go through when we shop. Do you mean the physical layout of any given store? No, I, 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 think, I think there's a fundamental problem in a lot of tech, which is it forces people to make choices in a particular order. And that very path dependence... Uh, creates market distortions when you force everybody to make a decision in the same way. And so if you take the property market, for instance, the property market used to be a mess in that some people found a house by looking at an estate agent's window, some people looked in the local paper, some people looked in country life or whatever, and people sort of stumbled around and bought houses, sometimes slightly on impulse, sometimes because of need. 
but the way the market worked was messy. But as a result, it aggregated a lot of information from a lot of people uh, with different preferences, different priorities, um, and making decisions in a very different order. Now, one of the things the web does when you make a choice is it forces you into a straitjacket. So it'll say, okay, what's your price band? What's your postcode district first? Okay, and then it might add, you know, other things like number of bedrooms. Does it have a garden? Does it have a conservatory? Does it have a swimming pool or whatever? Now, the only problem is that when we choose in the same way, you start to get slight distorting factors, one of them being around price. So there's no point in advertising a house for £875,000 anymore. And that's because if you're searching between eight fifty and 900000 Okay, whether you're searching high, low or low, high on the 850 plus or 900 minus thing, you're much less likely to find a house at 875,000 than you are at 899. So what you're starting to see is there isn't a price demand curve anymore. There's a price demand ziggurat. <laughs> and that's a distortion. And the market's being distorted, not by consumer preference or need or scarcity, but by the very context in which people are forced to make decisions. Mm -hmm. How do you apply that to the retail environment, the mall? The shop? For example, we're looking at taking you to uh, uh, one of the arcades, Burlington Arcade, uh, that sort of thing, you know, 180 years old. There's a, a stark contrast in how commerce, how mercantilism is performed today versus 180 years ago, if we extrapolate that evolution, where are we 20 years from now? It's very interesting, very interesting to see. One question I need to ask is, will online commerce be that big? Because what we have to remember is if we look back in history, we can look at Montgomery Ward, we can look at Sears Roebuck. They probably uh, essentially supplied what you might call rural America, non-urban America, to be more mm. accurate, with, between those two companies, it was probably something like 70% of their exotic non-staple goods were supplied by those people. Um, my, my grandparents, in fact, uh, the British equivalent would have been the Army and Navy catalogue or the Harrods catalogue. Right. And... Uh, that's how they bought all their Christmas presents. They were fairly wealthy, not staggeringly wealthy, but they were fairly wealthy but lived in a South Welsh mining town where exotic consumer goods weren't readily had in the shops. And so they shopped in the 1920s mostly by mail order. It arrived by train and then someone carried it up from the station. It's worth remembering that mail order has and, and delivery has enormous benefits if you consider it through the lens of buying a single thing. Okay, so let's say I want to buy a hat, okay? And there are two ways I can buy a hat. I can get into my car, drive to a hat shop, look at a limited selection of hats, choose one, pay a certain price for it, drive it home, okay? Compared to ordering a hat online, that's hopeless. You know, I can get a far wider range of hats online, uh, probably at a lower price, and I can get them delivered the next day, probably for free, okay? Where things become more complicated is once you understand context. And the first thing is that most days of the week, most people who aren't bedridden or otherwise are incapacitated tend to leave their house and travel to a place which has a greater population density than the place they live, most likely. 
Okay, and in the course of doing that, whether it's to go to work or to meet friends, they pass shops. Okay, so if you're passing a, a hat shop, the internet doesn't actually win that well because now I've got to wait an extra day for it, blah, 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 blah. Okay, if I happen to be passing a hat shop, see a hat that I, I wasn't even looking for a hat, uh, and I see a hat I particularly like, we should, we should remember that it's not, people I think tend to think it's going to go 100% online. That's also based on the assumption, of course, that, um, uh, that disintermediation in retail is efficient. And actually delivery to the door is spectacularly inefficient. Walmart is a much more efficient form of distribution right. than Amazon is. Okay, so I think consumers often believe they're getting a bargain because they're buying online. They are, but that's only because Amazon is being subsidized by its stockholders and is allowed really not to make any money. Okay, so the subsidy is slightly artificial. They aren't really saving money because it's inherently cheaper. The second, the second question I'd raise would be this. Um, Amazon is a very good way of selling um, 10 people one thing. But it's not a very good way of selling one person 10 things. You know, Walmart is how you buy 10 things. Maybe right. it's a cardo, it's how I buy 10 things. But it's a not a very good system. If I buy five or six different things, they'll probably arrive, even if everything I buy is Amazon Prime, they'll probably arrive over the course of two days and in three separate shipments. If one of those shipments goes missing or has to be delivered a day later, or if worse still, I have to collect it from a depot in Dartford, any of my putative time savings have been eradicated, really. And so Amazon's pretty good for selling certain things one at a time. I also ask a question, I genuinely don't know the answer to this, which is, um, is there something about the cognitive stress of having things delivered which is simply suggests that humans don't like having five or six different things in the air at the same time. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, it's just a question I ask, you know, that actually, you know, if I order 15 things on Amazon, if the net effect is I'm kind of nervy and jumpy for the next three days, right. going, hold on, has this arrived? Has that, what about this thing? Okay, then that isn't going to happen. Regardless of what the economic logic may be, if it makes me feel bad, I'm not going to do it. Let's come back to your, your analogy of, of the hat shop um, <laughs> and that idea, though, that we look at technologies in isolation. And once we bring a bunch of disparate technologies together, suddenly we've got a revolution we never anticipated. As you pass that hat shop, your smartphone knew that you spent the previous two days browsing hats online. And now you've got yourself mobile. You've got GPS tied into that big data as well. And as you round the corner and your Waze GPS app is directing you to your destination, it knows you had spent the last two days looking up hats online. There's a hat shop around the corner. It's going to pop up and say, hey, I know you were looking for a hat. This hat shop has a 20% sale. You should check it out right now. Let's add that to your wayfinding destination list. Or even better still, since the hat shop locally isn't going to stay open 24 hours, someone opens a locker in the town where when the ha I can simply request that when the hat shop chap goes home, he drops off a hat size, what about five, seven and five eighths or whatever it is, uh, in that locker and I can collect it for the next 48 hours, that kind of thing. That Do kind you of see thing. that as a future? Well, I mean, I see lockers as a future, largely because delivery to the door 
is an environmental and logistical nightmare. Right. Obviously, Amazon established its credentials by delivering to the door. But if I were Amazon in the UK, Canada's slow. Well, actually, Canada's a bit weird because you all live within 100 miles of the US border, don't you, basically? You've got this Pretty massive much. country and you're all like clustered around the 49th parallel. The further up you go, the colder it gets. The colder it gets. Um, but in the United States, you might say that um, uh, locker delivery is quite difficult because to achieve national coverage of lockers in the US, US is also different because people have mailboxes, of course, which makes delivery slightly different. And, every, you know, these tiny little trivial things have a large effect. In the UK, we nearly all have letterboxes, which can accommodate a book, but not much that's bigger. Uh, and given Amazon's habit of packing a USB <laughs> box, a box the size of the Hindenburg hanger, you can't always rely on anything getting through your letterbox if Amazon delivers it. What's interesting about the UK is there are 60 million of us getting on, and we're all crowded. I mean, crazy we gave Canada independence, really. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> because, I mean, geez, we should have just kept Labrador, you know, or Nova Scotia or something, just for like, the expansion run. But, but, you know, there's 60 million of us crowded onto this rock, basically. And actually, you can achieve national coverage if you're Shell, McDonald's, BP. You can achieve national coverage with around, it's around the 1,000 to 2,000 mark. Um, I think there are 12,000 post offices, but that's a super level of localness. Boots might have, the chemists might have uh, three or 4,000, I think. <laughs> we, we can check this. Maybe, it, maybe it's a bit more. But essentially, you've got national coverage if you've got about 1,500 lockers in the sense that everybody knows where one is and they can drive there. Or indeed, even, even easier still, rather than driving there, it's on their trip home from work. It's on their trip home from the station, whatever it may be. So certainly in the UK, I'd see delivery to the door as pretty deranged in the sense that um, uh, it's insanely difficult delivering to 22 million places, whereas it may be better for everybody if you deliver to 2,500 rather than 25 million or however the number of households is in the UK. It was about 22 and a half, uh, you know, but that's a few years ago. And so, uh, you know, I, I can emphatically see that as playing a larger part. But what of the retailer? Well, what of the poorest schmo at the hat shop on a long-term basis? How does that retailer in that retail mall survive? Um, you're just really good. Uh, I, I mean, actually, there's, there's an argument that says, okay, I will weirdly launch a bit of a defense for very, un you know, slightly unfashionable brands like Starbucks, um, Premier Inn, Travel Lodge, Holiday Inn Express, etc. And one of the reasons I defend the slightly unfashionable is I think they actually perform a very valuable service, which is they don't raise the ceiling, but they raise the floor. You, you'll remember this actually, just about, you're, you're quite a bit younger than me, but you can probably remember when most of the coffee in the United States was absolute shit. Okay. <laughs> well, weren't we just talking about Starbucks? Well, no, 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 no. I'm not saying, okay, I, obviously it's not nearly as good as Tim Hortons. I get that. Oh, no, 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 no. You're talking to a Canadian who doesn't drink Tim Hortons. I also don't play hockey and I don't like to be cold and wet. So I'm you're probably... basically a deviant. I'm surprised they haven't deported you, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm actually followed by Tim Hortons on Twitter, which is practically citizenship, isn't it, I think? Yeah, I would think so, yeah. yeah, yeah we'll bring you some Tim bits. 
Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. But anyway, obviously, what, what I'm saying about Starbucks, okay, is even if you don't think it's fantastic, it's a hell of a lot better than the coffee you got in the US in 95% of places in 1996 or whatever. Sure. And the great thing is, if you want to be a coffee shop, you've got to be at least that good. And if you want to be a hotel, you've got to be at least as good as a travel lodge. And that actually has led to extraordinary, I think, in the UK, you know, it's, it's led to an extraordinary transformation of the hotel market, which is you know that anywhere in the UK, you can stay somewhere which is pretty much okay. Now, that wasn't the case in my childhood. You know, the worst, of the, the worst 30% of hotels were borderline, I mean, just insanitary. You'd end up at faulty towers. Yeah, that wasn't. I mean, that was based on reality, by the way. I mean, they, <laughs> they went away. The, the Pythons went away for a writing weekend at a West Country hotel. I know this. Pretty much had that experience. Yeah. And in fact, one of them left his briefcase. Fabulous. You've heard this, have you? Mm -hmm. He left his briefcase on the steps where the taxi collected them. And when he came back, it had gone, and the man had put it, the, the owner of the hotel on whom Basil Faulty's modelled, had put it next to the swimming pool. And they said, why did you put it next to the swimming pool? He said, I thought it was a bomb. He said, <laughs> why did you think it was a bomb? And he replied completely, I've been having quite a bit of staff problems recently. <laughs> <laughs> hey. and, um, and so, no, I mean, I mean, well, genuinely. Well, now, let's, come, let's come back to your analogy, though, yeah. because whether it be a, a hotel or whether it be a, a hatter, in a, in a mall, the impression I'm getting is you're saying that there's a certain minimum level of service that's going to be required to be able to survive in the age of Amazon. But if you provide that remarkable service, and as a, as a kid at age 15, my very first job was a computer store job. And we heard of this big box retailer that was coming and going to eat everybody's lunch, but we knew we were going to survive because we provided a service they couldn't. We gave them the information they needed to make decisions and we weren't selling them things they didn't want. But what ended up happening, and this was 1986, and is happening again today, is showrooming, where people show up, they suck all the information they can out of the sales guy, and then they pull out their phones and they just buy it online. Yeah, I've seen people actually do that in a camera shop, absolutely, uh, to my horror, actually. I've seen people do it in a family-run camera shop. So how do you get and around it? The, the problem when you're buying IT is it's a high-margin purchase. So the opportunity to uh, charge a premium for, say, immediacy or for the service gets a bit more difficult if it's 100 quid rather than three. You know, I think that's fair. Um, and the showrooming problem is, uh, is pretty acute in quite a few areas. Um, the interesting question would be, uh, you can't always, it depends on the category in which you're operating, whether you can get around it or not. So do you uh, think Amazon kills off certain categories? I mean, there's still room, you know, I mean, most towns still have a computer shop, but they tend to be focused mostly around repairs rather than sales, mm. uh, in my experience. Which uh, comes, I suppose, full circle back to the idea that the way to succeed is service. Yeah, and of course they can sell on the back of it, because uh, one thing they, do, they can do is say, well, we can't repair it, at which point they know someone's in the market <laughs> for a new computer. <laughs> what will happen, and it will be painful while it happens, but a balance will be obtained. And the ratio, obviously, of what's delivered. You might argue, by the way, that the, uh, the ratio before Amazon and before online retailing, the ratio of what we bought from shops and what we bought from mail order um, was disproportionately skewed in the other direction. 
you know, the mere cost of producing catalogues was prohibitive to many people apart from Argos. Um, I think there was a figure that pretty much, you know, Argos and Ikea, you know, those giants could produce uh, pretty much nationally available catalogues. But you might have said that the ratio of what we bought online versus what we bought um, in uh, retail uh, in the 1970s was disproportionately skewed away from mail order. And that was partly because, of course, we had a mail order industry in the UK, but it tended to be seen as down market. It tended to sell on um, credit, and it was generally seen as, um, you know, for the, oh, the you know, the, I suppose the bottom half of the market in terms of prosperity, style, fashionability, and so forth. It's worth noting there are categories, on the other hand, where Amazon makes very little progress. I mean, luxury uh, fashion retailing mm -hmm. uh, seems to be, a you know, uh, which is a very, very high margin area. Uh, why, why do you suppose that is? Is it, is it just the idea that somebody wants to go into a store and physically hold something that's going to be a $10,000? It, it can't only be that in the sense that Mr. Porter, Net-A-Porter, Farfetch, there are quite a few London firms which deal with super premium uh, fashion retail. Selfridges uh, is a pretty successful online retailer as well. John Lewis, of course, I suppose, is relatively upmarket. Um, a, a little bit of that is just context. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've got the obvious argument about returns and fit, which make clothing, um, sometimes shoes, sometimes not. You know, um, some people are reliable size 10, some people aren't. But certainly clothing, there's always the question of fit. For certain types of clothing. But nonetheless, there are these premium retailers selling it. Now, who they're selling to, my guess is, if you're Mr. Porter or you're Net of Porter or whatever, it's too... I mean, part of it might be the wife of a Russian oligarch who's trapped in the middle of some weird oblast, right. um, you know, 500 miles east of Ninji Novgorod next to an aluminium smelting factory, and she's got a clothes budget of $50,000 a month but nowhere to buy anything. And that might be part of it. You know, there may be a FedEx van turning up every day with uh, yet another piece of Balenciaga. And then there are obviously people in London who are just too damn busy to shop, would be another group. So there's undoubtedly a space around really premium delivery, by the way. And it may be that, you know, in other words, Farfetch, Net-A-Porter, you know, the delivery cost for the people buying through those things is actually pretty much a rounding error. But there's also what you might call the framing effect, which is that if I go on Amazon and I'm surrounded by things that are 695, 750, you can sell a 500-pound handbag on Bond Street, you can sell it on Net-A-Porter, net porter but you can't sell it in Tesco or Walmart. Canadian Tire would be, ah. <laughs> um, would, would be your local example. You know, you can't sell high fashion in Canadian Tire, okay, because something about the purchase requires a context before we'll pay that amount of money for something. But malls aren't just going to be wall-to-wall -wall luxury retailers. Um, there, there has to be some sort of middle ground. How do we get to that middle ground that sees that we don't have that future where everything we purchase is purchased via artificial intelligence and delivered to our door in an Amazon package? I think what will happen is there'll be... Um, these things find a kind of equilibrium. Um, and... Uh, humans are more complicated than economists think, and therefore they're much, much more context-sensitive than economists think. So something that's expensive in one context is cheap in another, for example, 
um, certain things which economists think should be a burden, like going shopping. For my teenage daughters, it's fun. Mm -hmm. okay? It's hugely fun. You go around and look at lots and lots of things. Um, and it's social, of course, in a way that online shopping genuinely isn't. You know, you can go with a bunch of friends and tool around the shops in a way that, you know, which is rather an agreeable way to spend your time in a way that, you know, sitting on a screen at one o'clock in the morning is. The interesting thing is, I suppose, everything has strengths and weaknesses. To some extent, those strengths and weaknesses depend on what the thing is, but those strengths and weaknesses also depend on how we perceive them and how much attention we pay to the strength or the weakness, okay? So what, what I'm saying about that is, for example, Sometimes what happens, by the way, is simply fashion changes where we pay our attention and changes the nature of what's actually good. So I always tell the story in the, in, in the case of airports. When I was a kid at school in the 70s and 80s, the richer kids had been through Changi or they'd been through Schiphol or one of those fancy, the first airports in the world to really bling up. And they come back to you, oh, I was changed amazing. I bought a Walkman for like £100. It was incredible. There's shops and restaurants and everything. It's like amazing. It's just absolutely huge and incredible, you see. Now, over time, what then happens is every bloody airport in the world becomes a massive shopping centre. Right. And the novelty goes and the saliency goes. And we no longer go, wow, I can buy a Toblerone, because you can do that everywhere. <laughs> And suddenly what happened about eight years ago is you heard people going, London City Airport, absolutely brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Do you know, you land and, you know, 10 minutes later you're in a taxi. Now, the interesting thing is, in 1982, London City Airport would have been seen as a bit of a shit airport because there wasn't much to do there. But then what happens is that what's unusual changes over time because it's always dynamic. Attention is always dynamic and to some extent is, is paid to what's novel. And suddenly what became novel wasn't an airport that was blinged up with shops. It was an airport that wasn't very big that you could get through really quickly. Right. We have the same thing in Toronto. It's City yeah, Centre Airport. Yeah, that's the one. Is it Porter? What was the thing called? It is that's Porter Airlines. Exactly. Porter Airlines. That's it, right. It, when I fly out of it, it, it feels like I'm flying out of uh, an airline from the 1970s. Mm. I'm, I'm impressed that they don't ask me if I want smoking or non-smoking. <laughs> so you've got this, it's a tiny little place more or less in the bay, isn't it? It's, it's, it's next to the water, is that right? Yeah, it's next right to the on the water. It's, it's, it's at the island. And uh, it's a, a fantastic alternative to get from Toronto to New York because of the convenience factor. Um, the, the sidebar was, and actually this sort of tears apart the argument, is that it was also um, very big on little things like everybody can have a, a shortbread cookie. There, you don't have to pay for any of this stuff. You, you want a latte? Just grab something from, from, from the counter and away you go. Let, let me tell you, ask you, though, before we let you go about Amazon.com. It's now opening physical stores. What does that tell you about the future of retail when the world's biggest retailer is going back to the brick? Which exactly is what happened um, in the 19... 30s, I think, with Sears and with Montgomery Ward. Uh, between the two of them, they went from being exclusively mail order to having, I think, 800 stores across the US uh, in the space of about 10 years. And part of that is that um, uh, ultimately, uh, multi-channel, uh, the way I always put it is a Brit. I don't know if you know what Argos is, do you? 
No, I'm not familiar with that. No, no, it, it's an extraordinarily eccentric retailer, okay. which you could have described as mail order without the advantages in the sense that you chose things from a catalogue, went into a shop, and you wrote down the number with a very stubby pen. We had that in Canada called consumers distributing. Ah, in right, okay. Yeah. Uh, now, the interesting thing they found, um, and it's very simple, that if you want, ultimately, you've got to chase market share. Because obviously, you know, there was a huge amount of growth in the Amazon category with people uh, who hadn't bought remotely before buying remotely, all that sort of thing. But ultimately, if you want to keep on growing, you have to go multi-channel. And what Argos was fascinating, because of course, what it meant was they could uh, be based in remarkably small locations because you had no goods on display. The catalog did the whole job. You spent on print while other people spent on real estate. But it meant you could be in town centers, carry an immense stock range, um, in a not particularly enormous uh, location. You didn't need, you had, in, in other words, you had the range of a department store, but the kind of footprint of a, you know, a large dry cleaner. So did did, it, did it also, like ours, have the big <coughs> Soviet feel to it? My joke was, when I worked on the account, was that what they should have done is pretended to be Japanese. <laughs> if, if they pretended to be Japanese, we would have thought it was the most Zen experience in the world. Right. All you could have done is just put a few pebbles and a bonsai tree inside. And we thought, like, oh, the elegant minimalism. Uh -oh. But because it was British, we, we never really, we, you know, it always seemed a bit odd. A very, very successful retailer. What's interesting about it, and this is a really interesting fact, also true of TK Maxx, by the way, mm -hmm. which is the demography of the customer base of Argos and TK Maxx is basically completely representative of the whole UK. Now, I think in the case of um, Argos, it skews slightly male. And there's a reason why it skews slightly male. But in terms of the actual socio-economic demography, essentially, like TK Maxx, it's an interesting thing. The only way I can describe TK Maxx and Argos is you either get them or you don't. You've either got the kind of mind where you go, yeah, I get how this works. It's cool. I like this. Okay, or it's totally baffling to you, but that's got nothing to do with your demography. Uh, Argos is quite popular with with, um, with male shoppers, and one of the reasons is that uh, wives have found that they can send their husband off to Argos and tell him to buy one oh seven six four two slash twenty seven, and he won't cock it up. Okay. Right. Whereas if you send your husband out to buy sort of, you know, I don't know, a, you know, a pair of tights or something, you know, in an ordinary shop, the chances are he'll come back with a Venus fly trap or something. Mm -hmm. And so um, with Argos, it's a really reliable, uh, you know, it's a really reliable way to actually get someone else to do your shopping. So they deliver things like mail order. They do click and collect, which is when you ordered something online and then you went and collected it. Ring mm -hmm. and reserve, where you could ring up and reserve it. Um, there, I think there was also a text version. And there was effectively every combination of how you buy, how you collect, or whether it's delivered. And you, you know, you could pay in advance or you could pay when you collected it, et cetera, et cetera. What was interesting is that every time they introduced a new channel, basically they said 50% of the sales through the new channel were incremental. And what that suggests is that a hell of a lot of retail behavior is as much channel and context dependent as it is need dependent. Because I think I think the Amazon model of the world. I think Jeff. I think Jeff's. Uh, I think Jeff does actually believe economics is true, and I think he's overly preoccupied with price, uh, to an extent. 
Um, and I think uh, overly preoccupied with cost reduction. But I also think he makes the mistake that purchases go, you know, I kind of discover a need. I, you know, I find out the lowest way to satisfy that need. I buy it. And an awful lot of our behavior seems to be very channel dependent in the same way that if you look at McDonald's and drive through, okay, you could, if you were very cynical, you'd say, what's the point of having a drive through lane at McDonald's? Because all it means is that people who would have parked their car and got out and had a meal have one on the go. Now that, you know, that's the kind of zero sum game view of drive through. The other view of drive-through is actually that probably 50% of the people driving, using the drive-through lane wouldn't even have stopped if there hadn't been a right. drive-through lane. But I'll tell you a great story uh, about the uh, Tim Hortons and drive-through. Do you know this? Oh, okay. Here we go. No, sorry. No, no. Uh, there was a Tim Hortons, I can't tell you where, where um, the guy who ran the drive-through window was ill for a week with really bad flu. So the manageress takes over responsibility for the... Tim Hortons drive-through window, and much to her amusement, you, as you probably know, Timbits. I think you can buy. Is it six, twelve, or twenty? Is that right? It's, it's something like that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, people kept coming in and asking for driving up to the window, going fifteen Timbits. And she'd have to pay. No, you can have six. You can have twelve, or you can have twenty. You see. Eight minutes later, someone will come up and go, you know, I want 18 Timbits, please. You can't have 18. Timbits, by the way, for the benefit of Brits, are the, the bits that they aren't. But the they, Americans call them donut holes. They came out of the hole of the donut, yeah. you see. So they're little bits of donut thing. The, 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 the myth being they're the bit that's punched out of the middle. Of course, they're not. And so all these people were driving up. And eventually she goes, OK, you know, the first one was weird. The second one was a coincidence. The third one is now getting suspicious. So she, the manager goes and investigates, and what it turns out is the guy's been dealing drugs through the drive window for the last year. And there were these code words. If you wanted a gram of this or half a gram of this. Now, of course, what's ingenious about this, there's only one place where you can have a row of cars lining up at 11 o'clock at night, and it's not suspicious. And it's a drive through window. <laughs> so this guy was, was being paid by Tim Hortons to effectively sell drugs out of the drive through window. Anyway, that is ingenious, I have to say. I, I, I think that's, uh, I have to say, I, I half admire him for thinking of that. Rory, um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. I, I don't know if I've gotten any um, more funneled down to a core point well, for our conversation next week, but I'm, I'm going to work on it. The, I think the funnel is that human behavior is infinitely complex. It's not stable. It also is, to some extent, novelty-seeking. And I don't think, contrary to what economists think, that we'll ever have a world where everything's delivered. You know, to some extent, variance and variety, you know, is valuable in itself. It, we're not really in the optimization business. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurismic.com. The Futurismic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.